You're listening to the Soul Career Podcast, the podcast that brings you stories from people who've taken a risk to discover careers that fill them with purpose and make them come alive. I'm your host, Lysandra Ricketts. Now for the episode. Okay, this is going to be the most fun Soul Career episode of all time. I have with me my best friend from Harvard Business School, Kanisha Grayson founder of The Art of Applying, the largest Black-owned graduate admissions consulting firm in the U.S. and I think in the world. In the world. Yeah. They've helped over a thousand non-traditional applicants get into top business, policy, and law schools with over 20 million U.S. dollars in scholarships to pay for it. Kanisha, you are the reason Soul Career exists. You came to visit me in Jamaica in 2018, the year your company hit a million US dollars in sales. And you convinced me to launch a coaching company as well. Another fun fact is that we're both ENFPs on the Myers-Briggs personality test. (laughs) Right? What percentage of business school students are ENFPs, Kanisha? Um, I think very few. Um, Also just Hello and to all the Soul Career listeners and viewers and really happy to be here, Lissandra. Great to see you. Um, yeah, I think very few. I can think of some very specific ENFPs that we went to business school with and quite a few of them I do think started businesses um, right after school. But I think the ENTJ profile is the more typical business school profile. Lissandra, okay. we, yeah. yeah. I, would, I just wanted to ask you that question because I wanted to share that we're both ENFPs. We both love psychometric tests. And that is the end of my intro. So welcome to the podcast, Kanisha. We're so happy to have you on it. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, I think we're going to have a ton of fun. I am concentrating on not yelling because <laughs> my favorite thing is to scream on Zoom calls, but I have you know, this great audio setup. So I don't need to yell, even though that's, we're going to end up screaming, laughing, maybe even crying. Um, but yeah, we're going to have a great time. I can't wait to share my story and, and insights, encouragement, just everything with you, with your listeners and just have, this is just a great time for just me and you to have some FaceTime and have fun. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Kanisha, let's start with your business. Tell us yes. about the art of applying. Yeah, so The Art of Applying is an admissions consulting firm. And as you said, we are the largest Black-owned graduate admissions consulting firm in the world. Uh, We are also the largest woman of color-owned graduate admissions consulting firm in in the world. So there's other women-owned. But as far as I can tell, uh, I'm a member of the Association of International Graduate Admissions Consultants, which is our nonprofit professional organization. So as far, that doesn't mean all the companies are in that organization, but a lot of them are. And we are kind of seen as the vanguard um, of of the industry. And as far as I can tell, um, I do have the largest black owned and the largest woman of color owned. And of course, if someone wants to challenge that, come at me sis and (laughs) we we can see, but of course it's not a competition, but I think it is really important Um, for me to assert that because it's true. As far as I know, it's true. And it's very inspiring. I started it. I took my first paid client in 2009 uh, while we were at Harvard Business School. And that uh, has since turned into, you know, one paid client. So really $0 and a laptop 
to, you know, what became a million dollar company with eight full-time employees. And now we are a smaller company with like a wildly beautiful profit margin. And I would say a wildly beautiful freedom margin. So yeah, and we can talk about what I mean by freedom margin because I just made up that term. But um, yeah, so we help people get into uh, business school, policy school, law school. Those are our main degrees. We also do social work and education. We have a signature program called Application Accelerator that is a really um, in-depth, hands-on, intensive boot camp. Uh, that is every single thing you need to know to get into a top grad school and get as much money as possible to pay for it. We work with people from all over the world and uh, we have a lot of fun helping our clients achieve their dreams. Woohoo! Love that. And so tell us about your um, packages, your pricing, yeah. your revenues. Like, I love to hear that stuff. Yeah, let's do the money rundown. So I've been in business now officially, uh, I guess 11 years. I do claim a more round, you know, we like numbers, Lissandra. So I claim a rounder starting date of May 1st, 2010, because it's just like, I really like May 1st. We'll talk about another really important May 1st milestone for me. But so I, I chose years ago, May 1st, but I really took my first money in 2009. Um, so I've been in business 10 years, our revenue for 2020. Um, and just to be clear, I'm sure your listeners know, but just to be clear, revenue is the top line of the, the, the profit, uh, the profit and loss statement. So that's not how much money Kanisha keeps. Mm -hmm. So our uh, revenues last year were a little bit under $600,000. Um, and then our, uh, I pay myself $100,000, literally flat, all those beautiful zeros, one, zero, 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 you know, whatever, zero, zero. And then I also take all the profits. So of course, I do not starve my business of money. So I do leave some money in the business. So here's how it looks. I, um, I was paid $100,000 and then we had $198,000 in profit. What? Yeah, thank you, <laughs> Lissandra. So that is, if you add back in my compensation, that's a 50% profit margin, which is astounding and amazing, right? Um, but even if we take out my compensation, that's a huge profit margin. I also was able to, um, the company put $25,000 into my 401k um, and the 401k only exists because the company <laughs> exists. And um, so my total compensation on paper is really $100,000 in salary plus $200,000 in what's called distributions. Um, and then $25,000 in the retirement um, that was given to me. And uh, so that would be, what is that? $325,000. So yes. yeah, so that's, that's a more than 50% net margin on those sales yeah. that you made last year in 2020. That's For sure. <laughs> it For sure. During a pandemic. So I'm really grateful to myself, um, my team, um, and for our clients for trusting us with their dreams during such a time of uncertainty. So our packages, our, our signature package is application accelerator. So that package is not, um, 
it, I don't see anything like that at any other graduate admissions consulting firm. If you ever do see something like that, they copied us. Um, so they, there is not anything like that. What do I mean by that? It's, it, you can almost think of it as a school, a school of what it takes to get into grad school. So it's like grad school prep school. And um, we work with our clients for anywhere between 15 months to eight months, you all, they all pay the same tuition regardless of when they come. So it's much better for the clients to sign up in January, February, than to wait till, you know, October to sign up because everyone graduates on my favorite date, May 1st. <laughs> so whether you come January, 2021, or October 2021, everyone graduates May 1st, 2022 out of all of our packages. So Application Accelerator is our signature package. The tuition for that, uh, the regular uh, tuition is 27,000 US dollars, which is a really big investment. That's a lot of money. That's more than my car <laughs> costs. Um, but the thing is, we're not selling a car, right? You're in the, in our clients are not buying a car. What they are buying is an extraordinary transformative experience that's going to help them get into their dream school with as much money as possible with a guarantee. And the guarantee is that if you do all the work in the program and you aren't admitted into one of your target schools, then we will work with you for free the next year. So you pay no tuition and you'd be in the program again for a year. To help you understand or to help the listeners and viewers understand the return on that investment, um, on average, over 60% of our clients receive scholarships and they receive over $70,000 per school, not total per school. Um, and so the money is well worth it. So the regular investment is 27,000. And then we do provide a decisiveness discount, which is like a cute little term I made up. I love making up like cute little terms. And um, so the, we will take off, um, I think it's $5,000. It might be five or $6,000 uh, if you commit to the program um, during your breakthrough call. And we let people know about that decisiveness opportunity before the call so that they're not caught off guard. So that's our main program. Should I talk about the other ones or? Um, no, that's good. I, I, okay. so I mentioned at the top of the podcast episode that you made a million dollars in 2018. Yeah. Yet 2020 was more yeah. profitable for you than 2018 was. So what do you attribute to that yeah. in versus revenue versus profitability what changed between 2018 and for sure for sure so in 2018 we made a million dollars and i'm pretty sure my compensation actually i just want to look um yeah, no problem. to see what it was um but i know i i know a hundred percent that i made less money i'm just a little bit unclear exactly how much i made um while what i one thing i'll just share what i'm looking at is um, we use bench, um, for our bookkeeping and, um, I'm looking at bench, you know, years ago, they have all my, uh, they have this squeeze page up where you have to click on like register for a, a webinar. And I'm like, guys, don't do that. All right. In 2018 on a million dollars, our profit was 138,000. And then, um, my pay, I'm not exactly sure what it was because I had a lot of employees, but let's just assume it was a hundred thousand. 
So that look like, you know, that kind of looks like 240,000, but that's not really what it was because you have to leave some money in the business. So um, we call it 240,000, but you want to leave at least 50K in the business, which brings us down to, I think, 190K on a million. So let's just call it 190K on a million dollars. Okay. And then to be like 325 on 600K, that's a drastic difference. So I attribute it to several things. One, I was in a really um, high investment coaching program. I was paying $5,500 a month. And it was, it ended up not in the long term being the right fit for me because of several reasons. One, it was very, very heavily dependent on using Facebook ads to generate leads. So to get people to know about the company and to book calls. Um, and so I spent $100,000 that year on Facebook wow. ads. So that's where some of the money went, right? <laughs> um so it was really dependent on that. It was really also dependent on having a lot of consultation calls. So at one point I had five, I can't even fathom this now. Um, not that it would never happen again, but it was way too bloated. At one point I had five full-time salespeople. Yeah. Right. I, I and it was fun, but it was also very high octane, very stressful and very expensive because you have to keep those five people busy with enough people to speak to a day. So let's say they each need at least three people to speak to a day. That's 15 leads, which are prospective graduate school applicants you need a day. Now my team, uh, we could talk to 15 people in a week, yeah. right? And that's enough. So we talk to fewer people now. We actually don't run Facebook or Instagram ads um, currently, and we haven't since October, 2019. We may start doing that in the future, but we don't need it right now because most of our leads come from um, our YouTube channel, mm -hmm. but uh, not YouTube ads, just, you know, YouTube videos, like the ones some of you may be watching of this interview, but that's a big difference is I had a lot of employees. I was using a lot of money on advertising. Um, I was spending uh, $5,500 a month um, on a coaching program. And that's not to say that you shouldn't invest in coaching. Clearly I did. Clearly I have a business where I charge people, so do you, but um, it's important to make sure that, that, that the, what you're being taught is in line with your values and your own philosophy. And it's also important to make sure that um, you're not just getting yourself into a treadmill. I, my business was a cash eating machine and that's just not how I want to live my life. I would wake up every morning and look at my phone to see how many breakthrough calls we had booked because at, at the height, my, our monthly expenses were about $85,000 a month. Ooh, wow. <laughs> and now our monthly expenses, including paying me, is about uh, $30,000 a month. Wow. Yeah. 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 I'm so much happier. I have so much more free time. Our clients are actually happier, even though they're paying more than they did back then. Um, our salespeople are happier because we've moved into a more inquiry-based way of selling versus a, an advocating way of selling, or um, it's more influence, how you were saying, versus persuasion. Right. Um, and so those are a lot of the changes. I would also say big things that helped us is um, increasing the tuition of application accelerator to be more in line with the value that we were delivering 
as well as um, adding the guarantee to give people that sense of certainty that they're not going to spend five figures on something and, and end up with nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually yeah. remember a big internal shift that happened for you as well between even 2019 to 2019. Yeah. Um, you were, from my perspective, and let me know if I'm wrong, yeah. or go, 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 you know, all the time, mm-hmm. the treadmill that you mentioned. Yeah. And in 2019, starting in 2019, yeah. took a deliberate step back to say, I cannot keep going at that pace and for still sure. be healthy and live the life that I want. For sure. So um, in the midst of, you know, striving to make a million dollars in my business, no matter what, the no matter what happened, right? So, you know, I know we'll get there. Maybe that there is now, but like, in one year, I lost my mom. I moved from Austin to New York. My husband at the time asked for a divorce. Um, and then I'm uh, actually somebody who I was very close to, one of my business besties, had some sort of epiphany and threw me out of her life. Like, this is all within six months. Um, and then I make a million dollars. Like, what? And then a few months later, I have to lay off like, most of my team, because we, even though we made a million dollars, our costs are just too, too high. All of that happened in about a six month period from, from February, 2018 till November, um, 2018. I remember that year. And I actually remember the day you landed in New York, you moved, you and your husband at the time decided together to move from Austin to New York. You landed in New York and like a day later, he asked for a divorce or something. Literally, like <laughs> it was, it was four days. I mean, it was, four, it was, we were there for four days and he was acting very bizarre, very stressed out. Um, and I was like, you know, very concerned, but I was concerned about him, but I was also just like in my hustle mode. So, you know, he was doing whatever he was doing all day. And I was just like head down on the computer, you know? Uh, it was a, it, you know, when we moved? May 1st. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another May 1st. And um, yeah, May 1st is when we moved. So May 1st is a really important date for me. Um, so yeah, it was a really stressful year. And then in 20, so all this time I'm struggling with an underactive thyroid, hypothyroidism. Um, I don't have Hashimoto's, which is the full-blown disease and disorder, but I'm on that spectrum. So I take like medication every day Um, and, you know, just exhausted all the time, stressed out all the time and just frenetic pace of work and life, um, over-functioning, over-functioning in my business, over-functioning in my marriage. And so over-functioning is where you're, you know, in slang, doing the most, you know? (laughs) And doing the most because you're either surrounding yourself by people who are under functioning, which is what was happening in my marriage, or you are um, overextended. And I was overextended financially. I thank God I didn't go into debt. I didn't do like rack up, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of debt or anything like that. I just, you know, make you got to make 87k because our expenses are 85k like no if i make 87 okay we made a i made one hundred and forty thousand dollars in revenue in june 2020 and i got to yes and i got to keep 
$110,000. Yeah. So why don't you call that state that you were in, in 2018, before the loss of your mom, before the divorce, that go, go, go state is that separation of who you really are from who you think you are, who you think you want to be. So the mind is dominating your life and it's a separation from the core because you were running yourself into the ground. And then this tragedy happened, a series of tragic events. Yeah. Shifted your whole self and the way that you thought about things. So how did that, what was that shift that happened? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because before this happened to me, um, I had a genre of movie that was my favorite type of movie. And it sounds bizarre, but this is literally what my favorite genre was. My favorite genre of movie is about like a really beautiful, ambitious woman who like is moving really fast in her life and her life looks perfect. And then everything goes wrong and falls apart and she has to rebuild her life and decide what her values are. That was my favorite type of movie. And it always stars someone like Gabrielle Union. <laughs> and, um, that's what happened to my life. Yeah. It my, my favorite type of movie happened to me. And so when, when, you're, when I was hit with this series of tragedies, losing my mom when she was just 57, or maybe she was about to turn 57. She died like two weeks before her birthday. Um, losing my mom, moving is already traumatic enough then getting a divorce um, and like then also just the pain of of layoffs obviously it it's terrible to get let go but it is terrible to fire people and it's terrible to lay people off it is heart-wrenching it's traumatic it's traumatic so all those traumas at some point you I could not just keep going on business as usual one where's the payoff even for doing that (laughs) right like it why what does money matter if I don't have a partner a like-minded partner to enjoy it with what does money matter if I have no free time to enjoy it with what does money matter if I don't have good health to feel fully present what does having a million dollar business matter if I got a a 17 dollar level of happiness (laughs) so I just had to screech the tires and just stop and I remember saying I'm just gonna run my business in a sane way I think this was 20 this is the last half of 2019 and whatever money it makes it makes and yeah so that's what I decided and what ended up happening was that 2020 was your most profitable year ever in the business Ever. You took six weeks out of the business. Your team ran it for you, and it was still your most profitable year ever. And that's, that's right. Happen when you put yourself first. I agree. When you put yourself first, and when you um, get honest with yourself about what you really value, and not what you think will give you value. Exactly. Mm So I, I value, um, I value free time. I value spending a lot of, um, time with my friends. I value flexibility. I never thought that I didn't value those things, 
but then they were competing with things that deep down I thought would give me value. Well, you know, my Harvard Business School classmates, they're always in Forbes and like the um, 40 under 40 lists and their startups get a lot of attention and I don't. And maybe I'll never get attention from Forbes, but at least if I have a million dollar business, that's legitimate, right? And like, that can't be the way that I arrange my life because there will always be people that I literally sat next to or across the way from at Harvard making literally a hundred times, yeah. you know, what I make, you know, if, if I make 300 K that puts me in the top, I think 2% of earners in all of America, but I could just look three seats over and somebody's making 1.3 million as a partner at McKinsey, yeah. you know, so it can't be about comparing myself to other people and nor can it be about when I do this, I'll finally be worth it. I mean, that's the same type of thinking that makes the person who has disordered eating be like, when I'm skinny enough, then I'll finally be worth it. And it's like, how skinny can, do you want to disappear? You know, and, and or the person who's like, the person who's like, once I make this much money, I'll be worth it. And it's like, but you'll never have as much money as Jeff Bezos. So what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Preaching to the, like, I love everything you're saying, Kanisha, because it is, it, it's one thing to hear that from a coach, you know, um, mm -hmm. I tell my clients, you have to start from what you really value. It's another thing to hear it from someone who ran a million dollar business saying the very same thing and who deliberately took steps to scale it back to live the life that you wanted. And you scaled it back to 600K in revenues, but you ended up making more, taking home more in your profit. In your a, a lot more. I feel very sure that in 2020, I kept more money than a lot of people who might have really big Instagram followings or really fancy, shiny websites that say like, oh, I make, my business makes millions of dollars. Um, I, I don't know of a lot of people who, who are in that kind of one to $3 million business range that are transparent about their numbers. Maybe they're transparent with their friends. Um, but I think if, I really think that if someone's going to put themselves forward as a business coach, um, telling people, here's how to run your business, that they, there should be some transparency around their cost structure and how much money they're keeping, as well as transparency of their calendar. Mm -hmm. um, a young man who is determined that I'm going to be his business coach, he's already decided I'm his mentor. So I'm like, okay, I relent. I'm your mentor. Uh, we've known each other at this point, 10 years. So I'm like, okay, I'm your mentor. But um, he um, he asked me to be his business coach. And I, I was like, oh, I'm not sure. And one thing, you know, I walked him through my numbers and I also showed him my calendar to be like, Hey, this is how much free time I have. And I think that was even more compelling than the numbers because you time is, you cannot, you can make more money, but we can't get more time that's already passed. Exactly. Yeah. You've been my unofficial business coach for the yeah. past three years. So we talk like, Almost every morning. Almost every day, yes. <laughs> okay, so let's take it back to the beginning, Kanisha, to where were you born? Where did you grow up? What college did you go to? How did you get to Harvard Business School and Harvard Kennedy School, public policy? You did both. That's what right. That story. 
Yeah. So my story, um, I have a really lovely story. I love my story. It's a very American dream. Um, I like to, I present as very polished. And so I think, and, and sparkly and accomplished and successful. And I do think I am all those things, but I, it can be really easy to just be like, oh, Kanisha probably like her dad's a doctor and like her mom was a stay-at-home mom and she has a trust fund. And I'm like, oh no, I do not. <laughs> so I first just want to share some of the hard things that, um, or the adversities in my background. So my parents um, both grew up in Florida, in central Florida. Uh, they were both migrant farm workers. So they did not immigrate from like the Caribbean or West Africa or anything like that. They're born in the States. And so were their parents and their parents and I'm not sure when it, how far it goes back, but um, they as children, had jobs. So they would go to school and immediately after school, they would go to the orange groves and pick oranges, or they would even travel during breaks around to different states to pick other fruits. They had like a legit like child labor job. Um, that's That was their childhood. Um, when it was time to go to when it was time to graduate from high school, they both, they did not know each other. They, they grew up about an hour away from each other, but they both received a scholarship to go to St. Edwards University here in Austin. It's a Catholic private school. And St. Edwards still has that scholarship. It's called the Camp um, Scholarship. And it's like college assistance migrant program. I think those are the, what the words mean. And it still exists, but basically it's a scholarship for migrant farm working children. Um, and so they both received that scholarship. My dad's, you know, a little few years older. So he went first. And then a few years later, my mom, my mom arrived. And then he was like, that one's mine. Or maybe she chose him. I'm not sure. But um, they got married. They went to college, got married and had me. I grew up in what started out as a very kind of middle class neighborhood we were the only black family on the street it was like you know white families and also like um military families but then the military uh base that was there moved and all those military families moved and then it became kind of empty and that really brought down the property values of the homes and then a lot of affordable housing moved in i definitely support um um affordable housing and things like that. But what can happen is if it happens too quickly and too many of the units, it can kind of collapse the whole neighborhood, which is what happened. There was no tax base. So I grew up in um, a neighborhood called Dove Springs in Austin, Texas. It was 80% Mexican. And when I say Mexican, I mean like um, my neighbors would go to Mexico like for the weekend and come back like Mexican. And um, some documented, some undocumented, but uh, my elementary school, my middle school were, and my high school were primarily Hispanic and Spanish speaking. Um, and for middle school, I ended up going to a magnet school. So it's a free public school, but you have to apply to get in. And um, so I did that. And once I was there, Kanisha, the admissions consultant, <laughs> was born. So in seventh grade, they would pull me out of class and have me go around to elementary schools to give and, and middle schools to give talks about, um, you should come to our school if you're a nerd. 
and I would help the kids with their applications. Um, and then I did that again for high school. They'd pull me out of school in high class out of high school, and I'd go around to area middle schools to recruit people to the high school. And then again, I did it in college. So um, I grew up in a neighborhood that when I was growing up had the highest teen pregnancy rate in the nation. Mm. We had car seats for our babies when I got on the bus in sixth grade. Mm -hmm. It was gang land. I remember in fifth grade, people were like, what gang you run with? And I was like, my little pony. <laughs> like, I'm <laughs> not in a gang. So um, there's a lot of growing up really fast that happens when people are getting pregnant in sixth grade six, grade seven. Um, I also have a younger sister, uh, Tamika Grayson. Uh, so she is six years younger than me, but I just wanted to make sure I included her because she's a part of my story. Um, and we both live here in Austin, as does my dad. And um, yeah, so I did not grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth, but nor did I grow up, I also want to make it clear, nor did I grow up actually low income. I grew up in a low income environment. Um, at my schools, let's say 90% of the students qualified for free lunch. Um, those are called Title I schools in the US, but I did not, I did not even qualify for a discount. I used to beg my parents to fill out the form every year, bring it home, the little pink sheet of paper, because I didn't want to be the one kid paying for, I'm like, I want free lunch. And my mom was like, girl, we're not going to qualify. And, and, you know, we never did. So um, I grew up yeah. from there to Harvard Business School. Okay, yes. Kennedy School. Right. So when it was time to go to, when it was time to apply for college, um, I was at a public high school. Um, I was in a magnet program focused on the liberal arts. Uh, so I got a really strong, excellent education. When it was time to apply to college, I got called into the office of like the college counselor for the honors students. And she said, look, Kanisha, you're going to get into every school you apply to. And I was like, oh, nice. And she was like, but I think you should go to a small liberal arts college where you can get a lot of attention, get out of Austin, see some of the world and see how rich people live. And then you should go to Harvard. And I'm like, oh, she's like, you should go to Harvard for graduate school. And I'm like, I don't know what graduate school is, but it's a plan. And so really 17 year old me was like, I'm gonna go to a small private school for college. And then I'm gonna go to Harvard, a, a large research Ivy League institution for whatever graduate school is. I just wanna interject here that my mom was that person in my life who from I was eight or nine years old, she was like, you're going to Harvard. First, you're going to Campion, that's a, my high school in Jamaica, and then you're going to Harvard. And that yeah. someone speaking that into you kind of manifests it in your life, right? If they believe you can do it, you believe you can do it. Sorry. So I love that story. I didn't know that story. And I, I hope that your mom knows that you still remember that. Yeah. Mm. And it is important that someone's able to see that in you and give you that level of belief in yourself. And everyone deserves to have someone like that in their life. And even as adults, if you don't have someone who's serving in that role, that's where people like Lysandra and I can help is we can serve as the person who sees the person who can get that soul career or get into their dream school. Um, so yeah, maybe you don't have someone like that for free in your life, but you can, you can hire, <laughs> which is amazing. It's a miracle. You can hire someone who can believe for you.
yeah. and show you the way. So I um, decided to go to Pomona College for college. Uh, Pomona is a very prestigious, very competitive graduate school, excuse me, undergraduate uh, college, liberal arts school, very small, 1400 students. Um, and I had a huge culture shock there. I was used to going to school with white people. I was used to really hard classes. I was not used to being a working class person in a rich environment. I was not ready. <laughs> it was, to me, looking back, outrageously luxurious. And I'm so glad it was. Like, they gave me my own room. Like, I didn't even have a roommate, you know, <laughs> freshman year. I had my own room as a freshman. And I was like, is this normal? <laughs> um, and our cafeteria food was like very tasty and well-made. And we had a day called Ski Beach Day where they would take us skiing in the morning and then to the beach at night, <laughs> you know, and we did it every year. Um, we, it was amazing. I took a class, I don't remember what it was called, but this is the class where I met Shadia, one of my good friends, another ENFP, another entrepreneur. We took a class where it was like every week we went to go see a Broadway play in LA. <laughs> and um, I remember me and Shadia, we were the poor ones. And so we were like, can you like pay for us for the plays? Cause we can't afford to pay $70 a week. And the school was like, of course, <laughs> it was just amazing. So I did, Actually, yeah. We have a mutual friend that went to Pomona, a Jamaican, Stillian. Oh, Stillian, of course. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Right? <laughs> yes, he was. Yes, he was. Stillian was one of the very few Black males in my class. I think we had like five, maybe four. It was crazy, ridiculously was the low. smartest male at Campion in my year. He is ridiculously mm. smart. Yes. Okay, but continue your story. Yeah. So um, at Pomona, I did definitely went through culture shock, but how I really found my way at Pomona was not in trying to fit in. Um, one thing I also want to say is it was really shocking to me when I got there because I didn't realize that I had previously been conflating race and class. I had thought like, oh, rich people are white, white people, like there's poor white people and rich white people. But like, if you're black or Latino, like you is po. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't know I, that the the Cosbys were not just people on TV. I didn't know you, that there were Black families with a doctor and a lawyer as the parents. And so when I got to Pomona and people were saying, oh yeah, my mom went to Yale, my dad did this or that. And I was like, what's happening? <laughs> I, my head exploded. And so I actually found myself, I felt much more at home with the other um working class students of color. So we were like a diverse group than necessarily the black kids. Mm -hmm. um, because I was like, what do y'all know about my life? You grew up in Beverly Hills. Like I like I get that y'all are like super cool doing super cool black people things, but like can we talk about not I, I don't have enough money to even get home for Thanksgiving. <laughs> like yeah. that's what I want to talk about. <laughs> so yeah. then how did you go from there to HBS? And HBS. Yeah. 
So um, I studied Black studies in undergrad. Um, so I did a lot of Afro-Caribbean studies, things like that. Didn't really have a plan for after college. Um, I had won a scholarship from the Rotary Club to spend a year in any country of my choice. I had originally chosen South Africa. I don't even know if you know this, but I had chosen to do creative writing in South Africa, which I think could have been wildly fun. But I also felt like apartheid wasn't really done yet. Um, and I just wanted to be somewhere that was like black, black um, and like we're all black. And so I decided to go to Ghana instead. And it was a great choice. I had a wonderful time in Ghana. Um, but that was my only, my only plan that I really had was to um, go to Africa for a year. So the summer before my senior year of college, I was volunteering at a nonprofit here in Austin um, called River City Youth Foundation. And I just kind of showed up like, I don't have anything to do. How can I help? And they were like, well, Kanisha, they knew me from childhood. You're super organized. We want to do a concert, a stop the violence back to school concert for the youth. We expect about 500 people. We have a $0 budget. And can you get all the food? and drinks and door prizes for everybody and I'm like I'm on it and so my job you know with my little spreadsheet was to you know pitch to different restaurants whatever that we were doing this concert and I actually want to say why we were doing the concert we were having the concert because a cop had shot an unarmed kid mm. in the back so this is before Black Lives Matter this was just my neighborhood. So I've been experiencing the Black Lives Matter police brutality issues my whole life. Um, so I took on that task with enthusiasm and the executive director sat me down and was like, so what are you going to do after college? And I was like, I don't know, move to Africa. And she's like, okay. Mm -hmm. um, and what else? And I was like, I don't know, maybe I'll go to the Kennedy School. I don't actually know what happens there, but I helped someone with his application and he got in with a full scholarship and I like nonprofit stuff. And I was starting to really get interested into social entrepreneurship and social enterprise. So I think, I, I think I'll apply there and go there. And she said, okay, that sounds good. I think you should also consider Harvard Business School. And I literally Googled, what is business school? <laughs> and I, you know, I saw Harvard Business School came up. It's still the main thing that comes up. If you just type in business school, literally Harvard has, embodied even what even is a business school. <laughs> yeah. I typed in just the term business school and Harvard came up and it was like, do you want to transform the world? Yes. Mm -hmm. Do you want to, you know, be able to make decisions based on limited information? Yes, I do. Do you want to lead people? I do. Then I looked at the career site and I saw that you can make $130,000 a year in your first job. And I was like, that's more money than my parents make combined. And they're in their forties. Sign me up. That is so funny because I didn't know what Harvard Business School was either. When someone told me to apply my mentor, this, the author of Super Freakonomics and Freakonomics, I was working for him. I wanted to get a PhD in economics. Mm -hmm. And he was like, nope, you should go to Harvard Business School and be a CEO. You should not be an academic with that personality. And I was like, what is business school? <laughs> what is Googling our way all the way until, oops, now we're here. Um, yeah. I love it. And you know what? You know what he did? He had that vision and belief yeah. again. Yeah, exactly. So Mona Gonzalez at River City Youth Foundation for me. Mm -hmm. And then him for you. Yeah, Steve Levitt, yeah.
Okay, so you applied, you are amazing at writing, amazing at pitching. And so you got into both Kennedy School and MBA. Harvard Business School, that's right. So then I did actually go to Ghana for a year, uh, volunteer, I actually was in a master's in African studies program and I dropped out. It was an MPhil, which is really the beginning of a PhD. And I was like, mm -mm, I wanna have fun. So I dropped out of that. And um, yeah, so I, I went to Harvard Kennedy School for my first year and then Harvard Business School my second year and then a mix between the two, my third year. Back then being a joint degree was not very popular. There were maybe um, maybe eight of us or something that were joint degrees. And now it is wildly popular and extraordinarily competitive to do a joint degree between the Kennedy School and a, and a business school. I wanted to do the same joint degree, but coming out of the PhD track in economics, when I looked at what I wanted to do was the MTA ID at Kennedy School, which is yeah, I think that yeah, mm -hmm. on a program. But when I looked at the curriculum, I was like, I cannot do more econometrics honor statistics. I can't do that anymore. I'm yeah. just gonna have fun at business school. Exactly. <laughs> no, totally understand. I did a program that you can't even do anymore. I did the MPA MBA, and that was perfect for me. The MPA is all electives, so you can still do that, but you can't do it if you want to be a joint Harvard Harvard. Okay. But yeah, this the former CEO of the Branson Center who hired me did MPA ID at Harvard Kennedy. School. Oh, wonderful. Okay, so we went and that's where we met each other. We went met each other at HBS. You were in your second year, but your first year in the business school. That's right. Right. And I was in the first just attending business school and we met each other in analytics, which is the orientation program for people from non-traditional backgrounds going into Harvard Business School. Yeah. The rest is history. Yes. I want to fast forward a little bit to graduation. Because yeah. We went to business school during the Great Recession 10 yes, years we did. ago. And when we were graduating, we were the class with the lowest percentage of graduates in history that had full-time jobs post-graduation. Mm. The history of HBS at the time. We took a trip to LA. They gave us money. They started giving- They sure did money. to like help us. Go find a job here. Have some money to go find a job. So we're like, we'll take the money and go to LA and have fun. <laughs> yep. But then you decided, I'm not going to get a job. I'm going to start a business. How, that was a pretty radical decision at the time. How yeah. did you make that decision when everybody else was trying to get a job? Yeah, I mean, I just wasn't in a scared place. I was in a place of a possibility and expansion. Why? Because I had nothing to lose. Well, no, nobody has a job anyway. So like, for me, it was like, I'd never made any full-time income because I'd gone straight from college to Ghana to the Kennedy School. So it wasn't like I, I, I didn't even know what it was like to make 60, 70, 80, 90K. I only knew what it was like to make $15 an hour. So for there's one is I didn't, I wasn't, I had nothing to lose. I had no mortgage, no kids, no partner. Um, two, I had tried out life in corporate America twice. I did an internship with Eli Lilly. I did another internship with Nestle. They treated me so well. Um, they paid me well and it was soul, soul destroying for me. Not because um, the projects they had me working on were terrible. They actually gave me really cool projects. It was just the hierarchical environment, not not having a window close by, not receiving enough sunlight, having to come into an office every day 
9 a.m. to 6 p.m., my little 30-minute lunch and sitting in meetings all day. When are you supposed to get your work done? And when you're in meetings all day, none of that was for me. I still sit at a desk, but I am bathed in sunlight. I go to the dog park four times a day. I start every morning chatting with Lissandra. Like, you know, it just... It's a different flow of life. So I just, for me, I know it looked extremely courageous. It was, but it was also, it was to me the natural thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's still such a risky decision. Many people have a really hard time saying, I want to be a full-time entrepreneur because of the comparison with their peers. And for us graduating from Harvard Business School, the comparison Yes, a lot of our parents didn't have job. It was a recession, but a lot of them were making not 130K, which is the average, but 400K, right? Mm-hmm. If you went straight into PE coming out yeah. of HBS and, and yet you decided to take this grant. HBS was given a grant at the time to people yeah. who wanted to start their own business. You yeah. won the grant. It was $10,000 yep. from HBS mm-hmm. and that started this journey for yes. the actual clients. So I want to ask you, Kanisha. If someone right now is thinking of leaving their full-time job in a traditional corporate job and want to be a full-time entrepreneur, what are three things, three tips you would tell them to think about as they make that transition? For sure. I would just make sure, you know, it doesn't need to be an all or nothing thing. I like to tell people replace dollar for dollar. So go ahead and start your business, start your side hustle and start charging. Don't, don't spend a year building up an audience with nothing to sell. Like go ahead and start taking on clients or selling your program or selling your class or your services or coaching, whatever, start making some money and you trade dollar for dollar. Okay. I make, I make 80 K in my job. Okay. And I made, I made, 3k this year in my side hustle. Awesome. And you keep on, you know, making more and more money in the side hustle. Once you've hit about 40% of your full-time income, then I think it's okay to go ahead and think about making and making that jump. So it doesn't need to be quit your job, start your business. Cause that's too stressful to be, to not have money coming in. So that's tip number one. Tip number two is to be consistent. People, high achievers, we're used to winning. Um, we're used to getting an A plus. We're used to things working out for us, but that's not how entrepreneurship works. Entrepreneurship is about grit. It's about experimentation. It's about learning. It's about picking yourself back up and trying again. And so things may not work the first, second, third, fourth, fifth time. It took me, I spoke to 18 people on free 90 minute breakthrough calls before one, the first person said yes. Yeah. Selling in an online business is, you know, it takes grit. It takes grit. (laughs) It does. And you don't have to be the person who sells forever, but you do need to, at the beginning, be the person. And then, so consistency, keep showing up. I guess that's really persistence, rather. Let's call it persistence. Keep showing up. And then lastly, I will say consistency. Like, the greatest way to build a platform and build an audience is to choose your platform, whether it's Instagram or YouTube or blogging, which is the way I choose is really blogging YouTube videos and now podcasting and choose some sort of publishing schedule, whether it's once a month or once a week and do that consistently. When you do that, you can become an expert and known expert in anything. Yeah, We haven't talked about it, but I started out 
is both an admissions consultant and a dating coach and relationships expert. And why did I get to call myself an expert? Because I just kept producing content on a consistent basis. So those are my three tips. Um, persistence, consistency, and then the first one is uh, cash flow. So getting that cash flow. Getting it as a side hustle first. That's amazing. Yeah. I wanted to touch on that dating coach side of your life to close because I don't know how many people who know you now know that you started out in business school with an amazing blog that got so much traction called Crazy Girl Nation. Yes. And you wrote a book called Be Your Own Boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And we had a little focus group where we read dating books every month, me, yes, you, and my roommate, Diana. Trying <laughs> yep. Because most women at Harvard were trying to get a Harvard husband. <laughs> we were, we were, we were, whether we, we were all committed to that to some degree, but it was on the, all of our minds. Unfortunately, I feel like me and you were very confused. <laughs> we were also very young, right? We were very young. Yes, people, woman to be at Harvard at 26, yes. 24 years old when I got it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I guess I was 25 then. Yeah. So yeah, we were young um, and also didn't have examples of even how to date high caliber men. <laughs> um, so anyway, that was fun. But, <laughs> Um, what was the question? Tell us about your dating coach life and ah, how, yeah, did so you, how did you transition out of it? Or for why? Sure. I started Crazy Girl Nation because I wanted to explore being an online television personality and I needed something to be my brand. And I'm like, well, the one thing I love talking about is dating and relationships. And so I started my blog and I, I think I would blog like once or twice a week. I'm not even sure, but I was consistent and it, it got a huge following. I'd say 50,000 visitors a month. Um, I, any collaboration I wanted, I could do, um, and, uh, I wasn't charging or anything. It was just, just traffic. I was, it wasn't even running ads. Um, I was just, just traffic and I ended up, you know, letting that go and focusing on the art of applying because I was like, I need income. And this is actually bringing in some great income, but that part is still there. I love, I love talking about dating and relationships, attachment theory, um, and then, you know, a cute little way to maybe wrap this all up is to talk about my May 1st again. So I, um, in 2019, um, I declared that I would like to meet my beloved, my partner by May 1st, 2020. And uh, you and I worked together through a book called Calling in the One. And um, I got really clear on what I was looking for. And April 20th, I met a man and we are now very in love very committed and it's just amazing like that it happened you know yeah. so you we're not engaged we're not married or anything like that but he is my partner and we're really happy and we're well suited so um i guess i would say that all of the challenge has been worth it yeah absolutely where you are today versus where you were Two and a half years ago, just for anyone listening to your story, persevere, get help, get support through the hard times, yeah. because what's on the other side of that is a beautiful life. Yeah. I want to wrap up this episode by saying that as ENFPs, we're, we have the most nomadic personality type. It's the mm -hmm. bohemian, nomadic. We like to experiment and try different things and do different careers. And we're very entrepreneurial. And your life doesn't have to look one structured way you can mm -hmm. have fun with your life that's what we're here to do 
And you're doing that through the art of applying. I'm helping my clients do that through Soul Career. Yes. And I just want to inspire everyone listening that you can design a life that fits you. And Kanisha's story is showing us how you can design a business that fits the lifestyle that you want to create for yourself. Mm -hmm. With that, Kanisha, thank you so much. This was amazing to have you. And I'll talk to you tomorrow morning. Yeah, talk to you tomorrow morning. I had a blast. Thanks for having me, Lissandra. Awesome. Bye. If you love this episode, remember to hit subscribe and leave us a review. And if you're a professional, executive, or entrepreneur that's interested in taking one of our coaching programs, head on over to soulcareer.com and sign up for a free consultation. We would love to hear from you.